Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Uh, so sorry because uh, the, the great thing about this technology that brings this podcast to you, it just died on, on me in the middle of uh, the cornice molding plane. So you take the good with the bad with this uh, untrackable, unproven technology that we unfortunately we live by today. So we were trying to finish up with the cornice molding plane. And uh, let's, let's do a repeat of that. And we're going to get into some unusual planes, um, a frame and panel, a little bit about colonial doorways, iron hardware, household hardware, and uh, just finish up this episode with shutters and blinds. The cornice plane was the generic name for the complex molding planes with many curves and angles. So this is the huge, quote, uh, uh, you know, the colonial trim that we, we put up in our, in our rooms today around the perimeter of the ceiling where the wall meets. Generic name for complex molding planes with many curves and angles, ranging between 12 and 14 inches in length and four to six inches in width. It took no little effort to plow the irregular cutting blade into the face of the board. Therefore, side handles were needed or a tow rope hole that ran side to side of the plane. The finished work, well, that would have been pulled by an apprentice, um, you know, and just, just eye this up. You would have had horses or a bench. Some of these moldings could have been 16 feet long and putting this huge, humongous um, colonial type hand plane, molding plane on top with two handles. And the master was putting his weight onto it, and the apprentice was pulling a rope about 16 feet ahead of them, so they would have to have a hell of a long shop to pull it through. The finished work would end up as fancy moldings for eave cornices, chair railings, skirtings, panels, door and window frames, picture frames, furniture trim, and so on. So let's talk a bit about unusual molding planes the chamfer, which I use extensively in the furniture shop. The chamfer plane shaved a 45 degree bevel on one leg of 90 degree V-shaped sole road atop the surface of the work. When the other leg of the V contacted the work surface, the chamfer was completed. The depth of the cuttings, cutting iron's edge determined the side of the size or depth of the bezel. The raising panel plane was held at an angle to keep the adjustable fence horizontal and snug to the board. The death stop controlled the amount that the panel was raised. The wide sloping panel edge needed a two to four inch cutting edge set at a skew angle to prevent cross grain chattering. So it's, it's kind of a play on words when we talk about raising a panel. So we're actually removing stock timber stock to make the panel look raised. So raising a panel, play on words. So shaving shorts. Well after the Revolutionary War, most of the plain cutting irons were still being shipped in from England, predominantly Sheffield, because Sheffield was the, the capital of all steel making. The rake of the cutting iron for, for softwoods. So, you know, it would depend so just for softwoods, a, a smoothing plane would be 45 degrees. A grooving plane would be 50 degrees. 
and a molding plane would be 55 degrees. During the last half of the 18th century, some smoothing plane cutting irons were joined with a cap iron. This marriage has continued to the present, for the stiffened cutting iron dampened any vibrations. A series of ripples or chatter marks were traded for a perfectly smooth surface. The cap iron also lifted and broke up the end grain shavings, whereby preventing a tearing of fibers ahead of the single cutting iron. Plain stock was usually a beech or birch, super hard material to make the, uh, the body of the plane. Unlike English and American smoothing planes, the European versions had a wooden horn for the left hand. Fancy, well-designed maker, maker marks were often embossed on the ends of the plane stock. The owner's stamp was more often ordinary lettering. The fractional numbers on the heel of molding planes indicated the minimal width of the wood needed for planing the molding and not the width of the cutting iron itself. Smoothing plane wedges were broad and beveled, grooved, and molding plane wedges were thinner and had distinctive notched and rounded heads. To loosen the cutting iron and the wedge, the end grain at the front of the back of the plane was tapped with a wooden mallet, never an iron hammer. Knocking out the notched head of a grooving or molding plane might be tempting, but sooner or later it would split free. Later, 19th century smoothing planes had an end grain tapping knob at the front top, loosening the wedge without any damage incurred. Let's talk a little bit about colonial doorways. Um, first, we can uh, let, let's uh, let's talk about a, a typical raised panel door. So, if you're looking uh, at what we just imagine your kitchen today. The vertical pieces are called the styles. Just imagine like a train track. So the vertical pieces are the styles, the horizontals are the rails. So you have a, a left and right style and an upper and lower rail. Many times the lower rail was wider or thicker than the upper rail. The styles were always the same. And fielded into that was a groove or coping, which you would have slid a raised panel, which we just talked about. And a, a mortise would have been engineered or um, evacuated into the rails, into the, I'm sorry, into the styles, and the rails would have had a protrusion or tenon that would fit the, uh, the mortise and the rails very tightly. And two pegs would often uh, hold per corner, so eight wooden pegs or tree nails would hold the whole assembly together. So colonial doorways. This all wooden latch secured the door from the world outside. So initial doorways, probably from 1650 in colonial America, had wooden latches. But if visitors were expected, the latch string was out so the door could be unlatched from the outside. So you put a string on the outside, through a hole in the door, you're expecting visitors. They pull on the latch, it raises the, it raises the strike up and the people can get in. At night, you pull the string through the door, through the hole, and it's permanently locked for the evening. And in the beginning, hinges were wooden. So these wooden hinges and the latch have worked well for over two and a half centuries. 
A battened door refers to the horizontal boards that were nailed across two or more vertical boards since hand-wrought nails such as rosehead were of soft iron. They could be driven through the boards and then bent over or clenched on the door's inner surface. Once the door was studded with them, the nails were useless for any other purpose and were dead as a doornail. That's where the term came from. So the nails used for batten doors, they're very soft. Once they're, they're nailed through, the tips are bent over to lock them in so no one with a prying hammer could try to take the door apart from the outside. So dead as a doornail. When the wooden pegs were positioned and the wooden screws tightened, large work such as doors could be clamped, drilled, and secured, as we just said, with tree nails. Iron hardware. Nail making began with the heating of a square rod in the forge. A four-sided point was hammered when the iron was white hot. After reheating, the rod was scored with a triangular hardy on three faces about half an inch above the hammered shank. The still knot rod was then inserted into a nail header hole, snapped off and hammered down to spread the head. Five blows gave enough rose head with five faces. French colonists to the north flattened the heads with a fifth blow. Unlike trunnels or wooden pegs, nails didn't grow on trees. Iron was scarce and expensive, and the nails basically were highly prized. So just imagine how I just described the production of one nail. It probably took, someone could do one nail in about two to, to three minutes. But just imagine if a house needs 10,000 nails. Imagine the cost. So the production of nails in the production of house was 80% of the cost of the house. And that included timber, finishing inside, everything of that house. 80% was hardware in a house. The chisel point was wrought on larger nails to prevent thin wood such as shingles from being split when the chisel point was nailed across the grain. The, the pressure was with and not across the wood fibers. Small flat-headed nails tacked molding to furniture and nailed lathing strips in place. The L-head and the T-head nails had heads that were flattened on two sides. They were nailed with the flat surfaces in the same direction as the grain, so that the head was below the surface of the wood. They secured trim boards and also floor boards to the joists. The clasp nail, with its sloping edges, further anchored the nail into the wood. Large, flat-headed nails needed a brad awl with a chisel point to make a pilot hole. Like the chisel point nail, prevented splitting by making the entry slot across the grain it fastened door, window, and crown moldings in place. Cut nails first appeared in America around 1790. By then, Yankee ingenuity had produced a machine that could stamp. 1790, there was a machine to produce cut nails that could stamp out nails from sheet, sheet iron strips because the strip must be turned over to give a complete cut. Each side had a rounded and a burred edge. Head nails still be forged as they were in colonial days. Like iron strap, the iron fibers ran from side to side. 
they would snap if clenched. By 1850, it was also possible to punch out a square head on the shank. An indentation just below the head was a byproduct of a new technique. Fifteen years later, the nail machines had enough oomph to chop out a nail with a single stroke. Now, both curved edges were along the upper face and both bird edges on the underface from the downward die cut. They were stronger cut nails for the iron fibers ran the length of the shank. Such are the differences between colonial wrought nails and later cut nails. It might also be mentioned that instead of being pointed, a cut nail acted like a punch, pushing the wood fibers before it. Since there was a little side pressure to cause splitting, the braddle and drill was needed in this instance. So I think we're going to cut off then. Next time we're going to pick up with hammers, uh, more of household uh, iron hardware, such as hinges, latches, HL hinges, shutters, shutter dogs, blinds, and uh, probably incorporate in actually some paint, paint and, uh, and flooring. So Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.